And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25, it's important first to remember that we've been dealing with all of chapter 7, but the whole letter to the Corinthians, it's important to remember what this was all about. Remember that Paul is responding to a letter or maybe more than one letter. We don't have the original letters. So we don't know, we, we, we have to kind of know what was implied in the questions by Paul's answers to, to the Corinthians. And Paul is dealing with several different types of situations. And as you have noticed, Paul is a very practical teacher, is he not? He is not pie in the sky at all. He gets down to what Dr. McGee used to call the nitty-gritty. And only people my age know what that really means. And in doing so, he also corrects many of the wrong ideas and actions that were happening in the Corinthian church. Now, in chapter 7, he's already dealt with several things. He's dealt with sexual intimacy in marriage. He's dealt with singleness versus marriage, so to speak. He's dealt with uh, the fact that if you're married, don't change your marital status if it's up to you. Don't. Uh, don't leave a marriage, because that was a question they were asking. I'm a new believer. My, my spouse is not. Should I leave? But he also said, don't chase down an unbelieving spouse if they want to leave. Really what he's saying is, don't be anxious to change the circumstances that you were already in when you came to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean the circumstances of your life aren't going to change. I was just thinking as we were singing that song, oh, man, you guys were fired up death was arrested amen and I, and I think back when i accepted the lord i was 13 years old i really didn't know what that meant i knew i needed the lord but you know as you grow in christ that song and you can't help but get fired up when you sing that song that we're free in christ that death was arrested and and now as i'm much older in the lord i understand so much more what that really means but paul was saying look don't don't be so anxious to change your circumstances because you've accepted Christ, but remain in the condition that you were called. So really the rest of the chapter, what we're studying today, is really just a continuance of that thought line. So what I want to do, a little bit different than I normally do, we're going to read all the verses first, and then I'm going to come back and, and we're going to break it down. We're not going to break down line by line the way we sometimes do, and you'll see why as we do it. But I want you to get the whole flow of what Paul is saying here. And as you're doing that, you might want to underline or highlight some things because some things are going to stick out right to you as you're doing that. So let's read starting in verse 25. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. That is good for a man to remain as he is. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet, such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Verse 29, but I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep, as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice, as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy, as though they did not possess. 
and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. I will explain that later. I'm sure you're looking at that like, what? (laughs) Verse 38. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So Heavenly Father, as we discuss these verses this morning, I just pray that you would uh, anoint your teaching, that you would um, be filling us with the Holy Spirit that we might hear what you have to say to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you followed along in this, and I'm sure you, you, know, you may have put a couple of question marks in there, and you may have underlined a couple things because you're like, okay, this is speaking to me here. You see that there are a bunch of different categories of people that he speaks to here. Two main categories, but more than that. So he starts off virgins. Now, that just meant unmarried daughters, but it meant that because they were supposed to be virgins, Okay. Uh, So he's just speaking of the unmarried daughters. Then, uh, next category would be fathers with unmarried daughters. Then, third category would be married men. Fourth category would be married women. Then, fifth category would be single men. Sixth would be unmarried women. And seven would be still unmarried women, but actually widowed women. So he is speaking to all these different categories. And And the reason I'm not breaking it down line by line the way we normally do is because he kind of mixes in and goes back and forth here. So I want us today to to look at these categories. But first, I want you to see that there's two mitigating factors here that Paul brings out that's going to kind of filter the way he's thinking and the way he's speaking about this subject. What are those two mitigating factors? Well, if you look in verse 26, he uses a term. He says, because of this present distress this present distress what is he speaking of there well it's very likely that he was speaking of the persecution either that had already come upon the church at Corinth but we don't think that there was really a heavy persecution at that time but Paul was probably speaking prophetically 
He knew that the persecution was coming, and certainly it did so. So it's likely he was speaking about that aspect of it. So saying, look, there's going to be distress coming here. This is filtering into the, to the line of thinking that I have and what I'm going to say to you. This present distress, persecution, hmm, think that might start applying a little bit more to us here in America? I think it might. Then he says in verse 29, the time has been shortened. And in the New American Standard, that's the way I read it to you, the time has been shortened. And so what is he speaking of here, the time has been shortened? Well, it's somewhat difficult to know for sure because uh, in the New American Standard, it says has been shortened. The ESV says the appointed time has grown very short. But the NIV says the time is short. And the New King James says the time is short. So that kind of has two different connotations. The time is already short or it's growing short or has been shortened. So unfortunately, with all these different phrases in the different versions, it's a little bit difficult. But if the language is correct that the time is short, then he may very well just be speaking about the fact that all of our lives are short, right? The Bible says we're just a vapor, right? We're like a flower that withers and, and goes. It's a, it's a short period of time. And so if he's saying that, then he's saying, look, you're just going to live a short life. You need to take advantage of every moment. But if the New American Standard and ESV are more correct, it would seem that Paul was probably referring to the soon return of Christ. And that would be a motivating factor in all that we do. And so, which one is it? Well, I, I know that, that Paul certainly believed that the Lord was returning soon. Now, how soon and what was his total eschatology? We're not going to get into that. But I think he lived in expectation of the return of Christ. But Paul also knew that he could be gone any moment. I mean, after all, he had survived attack after attack, you know, shipwrecked, all the things that happened to him. He knew his life was short. It could be short in, in just even if he lived till a ripe old age, like many of us will do, or it could be short because of circumstances that could happen. Uh, I kind of lean towards the fact that Paul was living in expectation of the return of the Lord. And part of the reason is because in verse 31, he says, the world in its form is passing away. And so I think that he's looking towards that. But in either case, the motivation is there for us. The mitigating factors are there's going to be distress in the world. The time that we have in this earth, one way or the other, whether the Lord comes back or whether we just live our life, the time is very short. And so his, his views on singleness and marriage are going to be affected by those thoughts. So what I want us to do is to look at each category that Paul was speaking to here, and I want to see what he has to say. And look, if he's saying it to the people then, is he saying that to us today? Absolutely. So we need to take this to heart. So let's start with the married men and married women. He says in verse 27, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Now look, even though this is addressed to men, I do believe that it speaks to both men and women. Now of course, Jewish women at the time didn't have rights, so they weren't going to be seek, seeking a release from their marriage. But remember, the Corinthian church was a highly Greek church. And they had a little bit, not a lot more rights, but they did have a little bit more rights when it came to that. So he's saying, look, if you're married, don't seek to be released from that marriage. 
And so really he's just reiterating the same things that he said in verses 12 through 16 of the chapter. Things that we've already um, talked about. And he says, if you're married, stay married unless, and you remember this, unless the unbeliever leaves. So he's saying, don't seek a release from your marriage out of your choice. Even if you're married to a non-believer, you became a Christian, they didn't. Don't seek to be released. But the interesting thing is, and it, it sounds a little strange, but what Paul is saying here is, look, if the unbeliever chooses to leave, don't chase after the unbeliever. I know it sounds weird, but sometimes God allows a believer in a marriage to be released from a marriage to an unbeliever. Why? Well, because only God knows their heart. And it's possible that that unbelieving spouse could hinder the work of the Lord in the work of the spouse or the work that he has for that spouse that God allows the heart to get so hardened that the person leaves. And he's, he's saying, don't chase after that person. That's, that's hard to hear. Um, and again, we... You know, we, we don't like to think that that's possible, but it is possible, and that's why Paul spoke on that. But Paul has more to say to the married believers in verses 29 through 31, so let's look at those again, verses 29 through 31. He says, From now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And now he speaks to a several different things. Those who weep as though they didn't, those who rejoice as though they didn't, those who buy as though they didn't keep what they bought, and those who use the world uh, as though they didn't make full use of the world. In other words, don't get caught up in the world, for the form of this world is passing away. So you look at that first sentence there in verse 29, you go, wait, what? You mean we should, even though we're married, we should act like we're not married? So we neglect our wives, we neglect our families, we just... You know, because we're so interested in, in serving the Lord, we just completely let them go. Uh, we don't fulfill our obligations to take care of our families, especially as husbands and fathers. Well, at first glance, it, it might appear that way, but that's why we can never take one verse out of the Bible and build a doctrine on that verse. We have to think of all the other things, and of course, it, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Paul has already spoken about how important things of marriage are in in 1 Corinthians, in the whole letter, right? And, and go to Ephesians 5. I mean, Paul certainly speaks about what marriage should be and how important it is in, in Ephesians 5. And so Paul takes marriage seriously, and he can't just be saying, okay, neglect your families and, and go on. So what is he trying to say? Well, let's, let's think back again to the mitigating factors we talked about. And I think what Paul's trying to do here, he's trying to show the Corinthians and he's trying to show us as well that there are priorities in our lives. And since the time is very short, we need to make sure that we have our priorities straight. And Paul is really just reiterating some things that Jesus said. If you were to look in Luke 14, 26, you'll remember this. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, that's a key, he cannot be my disciple. 
And then there's the principles that he set forth in Matthew chapter 6 about not being worried about the material things of life, but instead of worrying about what you eat, what you drink, what you'll wear, what does he say to do? Seek first the kingdom of God. And all those things will be added unto you. So he's, he's talking about these two principles that he set forth. Now, if we go back and look at the Luke verse, I mean, that's a hard saying. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own family, is that what Jesus is really saying? Well, of course not. That would be absurd to take it in, in that sense. He's not speaking here literally hate your family. But what he's saying is in comparison to your love for me, in comparison to your service to me, in comparison to your relationship with me, it would kind of look like you hate everybody else. He's saying that's how passionate towards me that you need to be. And look, we need to make no mistake about this. Jesus demands complete devotion to himself. Can I say that again? Jesus demands complete devotion to himself. Now, when you first became a believer, you you didn't really get all this stuff, most likely, unless you took a long, long period of time of studying the word first, and you were like, hey, I don't know if I want to do this. And that's not a bad thing. Many of us had to learn it over the years, and we weren't completely devoted to Christ. Yes, he was my Savior, but my Lord, I don't know about that part, completely devoted. I remember as a young Christian reading verses like this and going, I don't like that verse, so I'm just going to ignore that one and go to the ones I like, you know, the ones where he provides for me and all that kind of stuff. I like those ones. But we're not, we're not allowed to do that. Jesus means every word that he says. Anything less than complete devotion means we're not truly a disciple of Christ. Now, I want you to listen really closely and do not misunderstand this next section that I'm going to talk about here um, because I'll get lots of emails. And so if you do disagree with what I have to say, you don't like it all, you can email me at matthewcolome at livingtruth.org. Okay? You see... Paul is saying, in comparison to your devotion to Christ, your marriage has to be a lower priority. And, and I'm going to tell you that I believe in the church today, and I think it may be a response to the fact that there are so many broken marriages. And we read the divorce statistics of quote-unquote Christian marriages, which are not accurate whatsoever. I, I shared Friday night at the uh, Valentine's dinner the the divorce statistics between true disciples of Christ, those couples who, who read the Bible together, pray together, and go to church regularly together, not just say, well, we're Christians, but add those things, the research shows the divorce rate is less than 4%. That's not what you hear in the media, is it? Less than 4%. In fact, I heard a recent study that used that same criteria and said it was less than 1%. Because there's a big difference between saying we're a Christian and actually doing the things that Christians do. But I think because of this culture of broken marriages that the church has had somewhat of an overreaction. And in fact, I think that we maybe have even elevated marriage to a higher plane than it should be. Now, um, 
I know that sounds weird coming from the pastor over the marriage ministry. <laughs> and it does sound weird. But I would say that for some people in the church today, marriage has become an idol to where the, the couple may be more devoted to their marriage and their family than they are to the Lord himself in Christian homes. And again, I, I said, listen closely. Don't misunderstand me here. But I think that there's truth to that. In fact, I know there is because I've watched it happen in people's lives. Now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who's more concerned about having good godly marriages than I am. That's 90% of what I do here at Living Truth. But I do see people who make family more important than God. And I think if you think about it, you might, you might see what I mean here. You know, there's families where one or both people, you know, i got to work millions and millions of hours because my kids got to have the, all the brand new toys, and they got to have the right clothes, and they got to have the newest video games, the latest version of Fortnite. They've got to have the top cell phone, you know. I mean, we used to have a 6, but that's not good enough. Now we got to have a, an iPhone 10 or whatever it may be. And my kids have to, we have to be in sports or music or drama. We have to do all of these things because that's prepping them to get into college. And as a parent, I have to be at every single game. Because if I'm not at every game, then I'm not being supportive. And oh, Junior's going to be devastated if I miss one out of his 697 games. <laughs> and look, their grades have, we got to get straight A's because we have to get into the best college. And look, if they're not getting straight A's, i got to go down to the teacher and straighten that teacher out because they just don't realize how perfect my child is. And then, you know, we're doing all these other things, so on some weekends when we don't have one of those things to do, we've got to get away together and we've got to have family time together because... You know, we're, we're just not doing it all together here, and so we got to go away all the time. And, and what happens, we, you know, we all of a sudden find ourselves, we're, we're at church maybe once a month or less. And certainly we, we can't get involved in ministry and serving in the church because we've got to be here and there and everywhere. And, oh, you know, how's your devotional time when you come into my office? Oh, well, you know... I get up at 5 o'clock and, you know, I have to do this, get the kids ready for that, and then got to get to work, got to do this. And you find yourself in a place where God is the last priority in your life, but you're raising a godly family. I think that you get the picture of what I'm talking about. We have to be careful. Now, look, I'm not saying that the ministry to our family isn't highly important. It is. It is important. But you know, we can be as guilty as the rest of the culture that we're living in today, which is teaching our kids that it's all those worldly things that are so important. That's what life's all about. Got to be successful at everything you do. Got to be involved in all of these things. And they learn that if they're successful in those endeavors, then they got, get a lot of reward for that, a lot of praise, a lot of adoration, a lot of be, being put up on the pedestal. But the truth of the matter is, and I'm saying this as a type A person, and as you well know, who spent many years teaching and coaching, who strove to win every single game. I hate to lose. I still hate to lose. 
I tell my family, they were talking about playing Monopoly the other night, and I said, you guys don't want to play with me because I always win and then everybody gets mad at me because I can't stand to lose. But look, those things are not going to bring us the joy in life that our relationship with God will. We know that that's true, don't we? We know that you can be driven to all those things. And in fact, those people who get there, you get to the top, and I know you know, winning a CIF championship, thinking that's the ultimate goal, and it's great for a night. And then the next morning you get up and you go, okay, how are we going to repeat that? I guarantee you Tom Brady woke up the day after the Super Bowl and went, man, do I have it in me for another year to do this? No, you're hoping no. <laughs> yeah. Packers fans, Steelers fans, Ram fans, they'll say, no, you don't got it. Retire, Brady. <laughs> Look, parents, listen to me, you parents. And I'm speaking as a pastor, and I'm speaking as one who worked with high school students for 37 years. You do not want to spoil your kids with material things, but you also don't want to spoil them emotionally. You do not want your kids to think the entire world revolves around them. We've done that for a long time, and now we're all complaining. And you have no right to complain. You talk about all these millennials. They're so entitled. That's what I hear about them all the time. Well, whose fault is that? Theirs? Who taught them what they learned? Don't spoil your kids physically or emotionally. And Paul's telling us, look, if we're married and we have families, that's important. But we still need to seek first the kingdom of God in our life and that we need to be concerned about the big picture not just our family but the big picture the eternal picture of the kingdom of God and you want to show your kids that the most important thing in your life is not them but your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ that's what they need to see more than anything that doesn't mean you neglect them because if you did, you wouldn't be showing them that. I really believe that the most important thing that you can do for your child is for them to see you in Bible study, in prayer, in service, knowing that God is more important to you than anything else. And being involved in some kind of ministry. Don't be afraid to involve your kids. And one of the things I love here, I got to tell you, when I see the parking lot guys out there with their boys with them, that blesses my heart so much. So much. You know, um, there was a pastor who was speaking one time, and, and he was made what seemed to be a big confession. He stood in front of the, the congregation. He said, I have to tell you, I, I had a drug problem. And everybody went, whoa, really? I, we never knew this. He said, yep. My parents drug me to church. Every time the door is open, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, they drug me to church. And that's such a great thing. When my kids were young, uh, I used to go to parks, the beach, wherever, take my guitar, start singing Christian songs. And back then, believe it or not, people used to gather around. I've, I've done this more recently, and everybody's like, whatever but back then people used to gather around and my kids had tracks and they handed out tracks 
to those that would come around and we would talk to them about the Lord. Drag your kids with you. Have them be part of your ministry. So I hope you see what I'm talking about here. I hope you don't take this incorrectly. But your relationship with God and your service to God is number one. But part of how you serve God is in how you serve your family. And I think you get the difference. All right, let's move on to the next category. Here we go. Single men and single women. Ears popping up here. Now, who does this mean? This is people who were ever never married, possibly, or single because of divorce, or single because of being widowed. And Paul is going to speak to them. And the common theme that Paul has here is, look, it's not only okay to be single, it can be a great asset in your serving the Lord. And I think this is so important for the church to hear today because I think we, and I'm going to say we married people, often make single people feel like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you married yet? You're missing something. You know, you hear this all the time. You know, you're not complete until you get married. Where did you read that in the Bible? That's not biblical. You're complete in Christ, not just in your marriage. And I think we do that. We kind of, we place people, and I I hope that you single people in here that raise your hands are going to listen to me here because I want to say that we shouldn't be doing that to you. Paul's saying that, look, singleness can be a great thing. You can be free to serve the Lord. And he's certainly supporting anyone who chooses to be single in order to more freely serve the Lord. If you look at this whole section in here, he says these things about single people. First, he says it's good for a man to remain as he is. Is he speaking only of men there uh, and not women? I don't think so. Um, But you might take it that way. He's speaking to them first. He, He later addresses women. But he also says, look, such... Married people, comparing you, married people will have trouble in this life. Oh, is Paul saying we're all going to have trouble in our marriages? (laughs) Well, yeah, we're going to have a little bit of that. But I think he's more speaking about, look, when you're married, and he's talking about, remember the mitigating factors, that there's going to be persecution, and and life is short, and married people have to be worried about protecting one another. And he's saying, look, married people are going to have a little more trouble in life. And he says, I'm trying to spare you. that he says also i want you to be free from concern one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the lord how he may please the lord and then he says that you will secure undistracted devotion to the lord now that's not automatic by the way for a lot of you single people you know what i'm talking about that's not automatic you're not totally devoted to the lord you're devoted to other things but what he's saying is you have the freedom to be totally devoted to the Lord. I mean, there's great advantages. You think about it. As a single person, you only have to worry about feeding and clothing yourself, not other people. You, only, you have the time factors. You have much more free time than a person who's married and, and has a lot of other responsibilities. You, you're free to take off and go somewhere when you feel the Lord's directing, where a married person may not be able to do that. Too many responsibilities. Uh, mostly as a single person, you're not as worried about going home and having it be in perfect condition. <laughs> you know? Oh, I didn't make the bed. Yeah, whatever. You know? I'll get to it someday. That oh, dish is in the sink. That's okay. You get the picture. 
I heard Pastor Chuck Smith talking about this, and he says, I remember when I was single, I could get in the car, and if I had to go do some ministry somewhere, he says, I'd get there really fast. I'd take, I think he said, a bag of apricots, you know, and, and, and some water, and he's on his way. And he said, when he got married, and he said the first time he was on his way home, and actually he was on his way home from Prescott. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and, you know, he's just wanting to get home and keep driving, and Kay says, when are we going to stop and eat? And his mind's going, stop and eat. I don't stop and eat when I don't, but he stopped and he ate because you're married. You have other people to consider. You don't just get to do what you want to do. And look, I want to say to all you single people here, but this is not just for living truth. This is in the body of Christ as a whole. But I want to say, if we have ever made you as a single person feel less whole, less holy, or a second-class Christian, then I want to apologize to you. And I ask that you would forgive us for doing that. And I want to remind you, married people, that we need to make sure we're not doing that. If God has called people to live single and, and serve Him in that way, or maybe they're just waiting to get married, we need to make sure that they understand they are valued people. They are valued Christians. And that we love them. And if you choose to stay single, and remember Paul said you need to have this gift of singleness. By the way, do you want to know what that really means? It means that you don't struggle with sexual desire. That's the gift of singleness. That's what he's talking about. If that's not an issue for you, then you may have that ability to live singly and not struggle with, um, you know, with lust or anything else. And, and you can serve the Lord fully and, and wholeheartedly. But look, some of you that are single want to be married. And that, that's great. That's awesome. But Paul has some things to say to you too. He's saying, single men, single women, if you choose to marry, hey, that is not a sin. If you choose to marry though, it must be in the Lord. It must be in the Lord. Now, technically the command was given to the widow, but I'm going to show you that it applies to everybody here in a minute. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 and 40. If you look there again, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But then says, but in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now again, Paul is speaking, and he's saying it's opinion. Uh, Pastor Michael taught you that Earlier when Paul was speaking, it was just something the Lord hadn't taught about. I don't know if this is as strong as that. It may just be an opinion that Paul is giving, but he certainly thinks he's giving a good opinion here in either case. Now, first, I want you to make sure that you don't misunderstand verse 29. Verse 29, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. That is true unless it's been a legal divorce. Okay? Paul is not saying that you're bound even though you got divorced. And even if the grounds were unbiblical, so to speak. If you want to know more about that, go back and listen to my message called The Wrong Question. I spent a lot of time on that particular subject. But I want to make this really clear because I have actually heard teaching, in fact, I've read a couple of books where this was included, that if you did not have biblical grounds for a divorce, but you were legally divorced, that what you needed to do if you were remarried was divorce the second spouse, and you need to go back and reconcile with the first spouse. Yeah, there's people out there that teach that. 
The thing is, if that's true, they never read Deuteronomy 24. And you might take some time to read that and find out that God says if you do that, that's an abomination to the Lord. That's not what it's talking about here. All Paul is trying to teach here is that if a woman is widowed, she can remarry if she so chooses. But she must remarry another believer. And the reason I said that that principle can be taught to anybody who's getting married, to be married in the Lord, comes from 2 Corinthians 6.14. You know this verse. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? So we already know that we're not to be unequally yoked in marriage. Now, that doesn't just speak of marriage, but it does speak of marriage. We need to be yoked with other believers. Now, the last category that's going to be spoken of here, and this is an interesting category, it's fathers and mothers, really, with unmarried daughters. He speaks to fathers with unmarried daughters. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one because you have to remember, in ancient culture, in this culture, the Jewish culture, and believe it or not, the Greek culture as well, and I had to look this one up because I wasn't sure about this. But in both of those cultures, marriages were arranged. And usually it was a deal between the two dads. Now, some of you single girls in here are going, oh, please, don't tell me the Bible says we have to do that. No, it doesn't. This was part of the culture of the time. And the two dads would get together and there would be a financial bargain struck with the money exchanged. By the way, most of you maybe don't know, but... But that money that was exchanged, there's a difference between a bride price and a dowry. A dowry is what a woman brings to the marriage. The bride price is what is given by the prospective groom. It's supposed to be put in a savings account, so to speak, in case later on the husband dies or even in that culture there were divorces. That money was to go to the woman so that she had something to take care of herself because women didn't have a lot of opportunity in that day. That's why you read in the book of of Ruth. Remember what did Ruth have to go do? He had to go glean in the fields to try to survive. But that's what would happen in that culture. And so in verses 36 through 39, Paul is just telling the fathers, look, when it says act unbecomingly, that's not some weird thing, okay? What he's saying is, if you have kept your daughter thus far and, and you haven't given her in marriage yet, because you desired her to be fully committed to the Lord. If that was your desire and, and she's been there and maybe now you're thinking, well, maybe that's wrong. Maybe I've been unfair. Maybe I, I really haven't treated her right or thought of her feelings. She wants to get married. Paul's just saying, let her get married. It's not a sin. You're okay. You didn't break a vow. Just go ahead and let her get married. But he says it's also okay for her to stay unmarried and dedicated to the Lord. Now, again, if, if you were a young woman at that time, I would certainly hope you would go to your father and say, okay, Dad, I know you want me to stay unmarried for the rest of my life, but look, <laughs> I'd kind of like to get married. Can you go out and find a guy here? Let's get this thing done. But all Paul is saying is either way, it's okay. No sin involved here either way. So, of course, in our culture today, we can, we can say it's, it's really not up to us who our kids marry, even though most of us would like it to be up to us, would we not? 
I think a lot of us dads are going, I could do a whole lot better job finding the right guy here. And uh, we'd like to do that. But look, at 18 years old, our kids are legally able to get married without our permission. And that's the society we live in. And so really our job today, rather than to you know, try to force something to happen. Our job today is, look, number one, the Bible tells us, train our kids up in the way they should go, in the ways of the Lord and in the way that they should go as individual people, encouraging them in the gifts that God has given to them. And then, I will tell you, after that, our job, and I've tell, told many of you parents who've come into my office as your kids are becoming adults this, your job now is to get knobby knees. What do I mean by that? You've got to pray. You need to be praying, praying, praying all the time because you're not going to run your kids' lives anymore. They're going to make their own decisions and we need to pray and ask God to work in their lives and then be available to them when they're asking or wanting or needing help. That's our job. So if we were to look at this chapter, if we were to say, let's, let's kind of sum up this whole, this whole thing that Paul's talking about here you know, and let's say Paul was standing in this pulpit instead of me, and you guys would be much more riveted, I'm sure, um, to that. But if, if Paul was here in, in Corona today, I think he would stand up here if he was using our vernacular today. He would, he would probably say something like this. Look, Coronians, calm down and Christian on. Just calm down. Because, see, they had all of these concerns, and, and they were good, but they were trying to make rash and hasty decisions based on the fact that now I'm a believer. My life should change completely. And Paul's just saying, just calm down and, and walk your Christian life. Look, married people, stay married and do the best you can in that marriage. Don't neglect your duties as, as parents and as spouses one to another, but also don't use your marriage as an excuse for not being in fellowship for not serving the Lord in ministry, for neglecting. Don't use your family for neglecting the spiritual gifts that God has given to you. God has given you all a spiritual gifts. Singles, married, God's given you spiritual gifts and he expects you to use them. Don't use family to say, well, I can't use my gift because this all has to come first. No, Paul's saying don't do that. Single people, he's saying to you, if you want to get married, that's, Good, but I, I would say this to you. Don't spend every minute looking for your mate. Don't be obsessed with finding a mate. I was, I was actually listening to uh, Dave Rolfe uh, from Calvary Chapel Pacific Hills teaching on this same subject, and he, and he said something that kind of struck me, uh, and it's probably true. If you're too obsessed with finding a mate, you're probably pushing potential mates away. So that's just a, an advice for some of you young people. I think that that can be true. You can scare people off. And I think you need to be careful. I would say really be careful if you're going to Christian singles groups. Again, I'm just being real practical here. It's been my experience over many years with many different churches that a lot of those Christian single groups are just like these kind of hunting grounds. And that wolves in sheep's clothing come in because all they're looking for is a certain type of relationship with a, a girl that they're not interested in marrying. Now, I hope that's not true everywhere. I hope some are really spiritual. But you need to be careful there. Don't be so obsessed with finding that mate. While you're single, look to the Lord and go, Lord, what do you want to do with me? 
There's nothing more attractive, and I, I will say this unequivocally, there is nothing more attractive for a person looking for a spouse than to find another person who is totally serving the Lord and totally growing in the Lord and totally being used by the Lord. That is attractive to a real strong believer, and that's what you want. You want to be equally yoked. So instead, just serve the Lord with your undivided attention until you know, he, he brings someone along. Or, you know, look, I'm not saying, I know several Christian people who have gone on dating sites, um, Christian dating sites, and they've gotten married. There's nothing wrong with that, but just don't be obsessed with it. Just calm down, Christian on. The thing is that when we're single, we just want to let the Lord be our all in all. We want to let him meet all of our needs. And, and he will. Just deepen and grow your relationship with him and serve him fully with gladness, along with, not separate from, but along with all the people in here that are married and serving the Lord as well. Because that's what God wants. He wants us to work together, serving him, using our gifts, being in joyous fellowship one with another. I'm just going to use one example here for, for single people and especially for those because I know we have a lot of widows in our body here. And uh, I know those first years are so tough. I'm going to use my mom as an example even though she wasn't a widow. Uh, my mom was, and, and some of you have even seen uh, my mom. You know, she grew up really groomed to be a Hollywood star. And, um, you know, I put pictures on, on Facebook. Some of you have seen them with her with Frank Sinatra and Abbott and Costello and all these people from when she was young. She had everything it took to be a fantastic uh, movie star, singer. Um, the only thing she didn't do is dance, which is why I didn't get that gene either, in case you were wondering. Um, but she, she had, and in fact, it's almost a miracle that she didn't become a star. Growing up in Hollywood, singing at the Palladium in Hollywood at 13 years old. I have newspaper articles that say, you know, she's up for a next movie role. Never got one. Turned one down, but never got one. And so she got married, and my, her and my biological dad got divorced after 11 years. And um, during that time, she was singing professionally in all kinds of different places. Um, after she got divorced, we, we moved around. I, I've told people this. I moved 18 times before I graduated from high school, going around different places where she had to go and sing. But Reno, Tahoe, Palm Springs, usually back in Orange County. Then she got remarried. And unfortunately, uh, that one didn't work out too well either. Um, got divorced again. After that second divorce, and not too many years afterwards, my mom receive the Lord. She said she came back to the Lord. She thought she accepted the Lord when she was a kid. But she came back to the Lord, and she came to the Lord on fire. The last 20-some years of her life, she spent um, working as an assistant at, at a church. Her pastor was a guy she managed in the nightclub business. She got saved, then he got saved, delivered from alcoholism, and they started a church together over in Pomona. So the last 25 years of her life, she was dedicated fully to the Lord. The Lord had gifted her with the gift of singleness. And even though we disagreed theologically many times, <laughs> the kind of church that she was at, and sometimes I would straighten her and her pastor out. Um, 
But her life was completely dedicated to the Lord. And she never once again really ever thought about getting married again. And God used her in a tremendous way. So I want to share that with those of you that are in that situation, either by divorce or being widowed, that God has a great plan for you. And God wants to use you. God wants to use every one of us till our very last breath. Amen? So calm down, Christian on, married, single, and let God be number one in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for Paul and his writings to the Corinthian church and how he answered their questions, how um, he spoke to their needs, and Lord, how he so clearly shows us that no matter what our circumstance is, that we just need to be committed and dedicated to you first. And Lord, that you will bring all the things that we need, you will Bring a spouse if we're supposed to have one, Lord. You'll take care of the needs of our family, um, Lord, that even though that's a critical part of what we do as married people, um, that we just can't allow that to uh, be the only thing we do. That, Lord, we need to be spending time with you personally. We need to be in fellowship with one another, and we need to be serving you. So, Lord, I pray that you'll just speak to each one as they need to hear what you've said today, Lord. And anything that's just my opinion, Lord, that can fly out, the, out of the brain, Lord. But anything that you want to speak from your Holy Spirit, Lord, please do that. And, Lord, that we would take to heart the things that Paul is speaking to us and that we would make sure that we're following his instructions here. And so, God, um, as we do that, there may be one in here this morning who has heard this and and yet they have never actually even received the Lord. Maybe they don't know what it means to serve you and, and what we're even talking about here, but maybe you're tugging on their heartstrings and that's the desire that they have today that they're like, I, I, I think I need this, this Jesus that they're singing about this morning, that they're talking about today. And Lord, if that's the case, I pray that right now that they would make that decision, that they would follow you and... And, Lord, that they can just do that in the, in the quietness of their hearts, something like this. Uh, Jesus, I see my need for you. I realize that I need to serve you because you died on a cross to, to save me from my sin and to bring me into relationship with you. And I want to make that decision now, Lord. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want to be totally committed to you. And, Lord, I thank you that you will give me new life as I receive you into my life today. In Jesus' name. And Lord, for, for all these uh, wonderful people that I get to see every week, and Lord, just spend time with and uh, just watch, Lord, their love for you. I just pray that you would cause each one to grow even stronger. Lord, uh, that they would deepen even their personal relationship with you by daily time with you and all the things that you would want to do with them, Lord. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you will take all the things that we hear in here, Lord, and that we will take it out and share it with the world that needs to know you, uh, that needs to hear what you have done for them. And we thank you, Lord, for that in Jesus' name. Amen.